Welcome to the Fat Tail Investment Podcast this week. We have a cracking guest for you today, and it's a little bit different to what we normally do. Um, her name is Erna Walraver, and she's written a book called Sunset in Spain. Now, I happen to pick this up because I've got a Spanish wife. I've tried to learn Spanish. Both my girls uh, uh, speak Spanish because of their mum. But the reason I'm getting her on the podcast because uh, the owner of Fat Tail Media, um, I should say Fat Tail Investment Research, rather, uh, he began with a magazine called International Living, and it was about Americans at the time taking the capital that they had and finding somewhere cheaper to live that perhaps had better healthcare or better lifestyle, better weather. And that struck out for me when uh, I saw Erna's book. So, of course, she has, uh, her and her husband have a house in Sydney, had a lifestyle on the northern shore there, um, and, but she had this pull towards Spain because she had lived there and speaks the language. Now, I've spent a bit of time in Spain, beautiful weather, great food, good people, cracking lifestyle. If you've got an income from somewhere else, because the wages aren't so hot in Spain, right? So at much lower cost. So I thought it'd be really interesting to get Erna on to hear about how the idea of uh, moving to Spain came about, what she had to do out here in Australia to make it happen, and what they found once they got over there. So it's a really interesting book. I encourage you to pick it up and have it read. It's more like a travel uh, memoir than our usual sort of finance books that we talk about here on the podcast. But she's certainly been made a brave uh, decision. She's invested uh, quite a bit of money over there in a, a new property. And it's really interesting to see uh, her story and what drove her to do it. So if you're intrigued by the idea of international living, maybe stretching your super income or capital growth further, perhaps you can spend um, some time overseas. It doesn't have to be a permanent move. You could uh, spend, say, the summer in uh, Northern Hemisphere for the for their summer and then come back for the Aussie summer or potentially sell up here and do what Erna's done and, and move to Spain. So. If you're interested in that idea, check out her book. But of course, let's talk to her now for her take on living in Spain. I wanted to start this because Fat Tail Investment Research is owned by a guy called Bill Bonner. And the very he's a big publisher in the US. And the very first magazine he published was called International Living, uh, which was about retiring overseas. So can you tick us off and say, what led you to this idea of uh, moving overseas and why in particular Spain? Yeah, I was um, born in the Netherlands, in Holland, and I moved to Spain when I was 18. Typical teenager, I just wanted to get out of the small country town and uh, that I grew up in and the grey skies of the Netherlands, and Spain seemed like such an adventure. Um, so I lived there for seven years in my late teens and early 20s and became a translator. Then I met my my. Um, lovely husband is we're still together and um, so it was well worth chasing him to the other side of the world as I did eventually we sort of met in different places over a few years and then went now nah, we're going to stay together one of us will have to move he tried the Netherlands and um, wasn't that enamored as a <laughs> as, as a botanist who specializes in desert plants, his his uh, work prospects didn't look too good. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he needed to go to the marijuana plant. Oh. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> so then in retirement, I had a hankering to be back in Spain for some time, and 
we went over there just for a visit and, and I had that visceral moment when we were sitting on a cobblestone square drinking coffee in the early morning and all these plane trees around us and little benches where people meet and chat. And then the church bells rang and there was just something going off in me that said, I want to live here again. And luckily, this gorgeous husband who's still around said, yeah, let's have an adventure. Why not? So, so yeah, so just, that's how that came about. I'm just thinking, so you're, in, you're living in Sydney. You, at that point, you decide to go and rent over there and give it a try. Is that how it started off? Yeah, that's right. So um, we were living, in, you know, blissfully on the um, insular peninsula in Avalon and gorgeous. I mean, you, you couldn't really ever think that that wasn't a fabulous life, but I felt there was something missing, maybe some adventure uh, of some sort, um, maybe purpose. It, it's hard to know. I mean, retirement can be a difficult time. It's like when you finish your schooling or uni and the whole world is open to you and you go, now what am I going to do with my life? I need to invent a life and, and um, how am I going to do that? So, yeah, the, the plan was to rent. And then Alex, bless his cotton socks, uh, one day taking photographs, he sees a house for sale right next to where we stopped the car. And instantly he became very interested in the sign that said for sale. I mean, there were beautiful um, white-capped mountains in the distance and a little almond uh, orchard right in front of it. So, you know, pink blossom, white mountains, you know, you, you couldn't do better really. Just, um, just quickly to go back to the decision, just for the one thing, the one, the hard, I presume the hard part is if you're yeah. leaving someone behind. Do you have kids or elderly parents, or it was because you literally just go, look, you know, bugger this, we're retired, we're going to cut loose. Yeah, um, we don't have kids, so we both had uh, very involved careers in in um, conservation. So I worked as the senior curator at Taronga Zoo, managing all the the breeding programs and the animal release programs for rewilding, and my husband worked in national parks and uh, was the manager of the branch that looked at creating new conservation areas, national parks, nature reserves. So I think we, we um, it was pretty clear we both love nature. And <laughs> one of the things that we found irritating in, in um, Sydney was how long it took to get into the bush. You know, you had to go on highways and there'd be traffic and there'd be traffic jams and all of that. It would take at least an hour and a half, two hours to get out of the bush. So we were quite keen to live somewhere in a community where you could go for a walk and there'd be real nature, not asphalt. Um, so, yeah, it, it, was, it wasn't a hard decision somehow. I, I think it is because the decision was made whilst we were there and it all seemed a bit of a hoot. Um, and that house, that house in Sydney would still be there when we came back if we didn't like it. And with you being Dutch, does that mean you have your EU passport, so you sort of cleared that hurdle fairly easily? Yeah, we did. I mean, we did stupidly for some reason, did not realise that Alex needed a, um, a visa for a longer stay because we'd been to Spain quite regularly and he'd never needed a visa and we just thought that, you know, there was some reciprocal arrangement in <laughs> Australia and, uh, and Spain. Um, I've got a funny story about that too. Um. Yeah. So we had to we had to sort of scramble and go to the police for foreigners and 
you know, get special permits to be allowed to stay a little longer than the three months that he was allocated, but with as a tourist, yeah. in the passport, yes. yeah, tourist visa. One thing I wanted to talk about is, as I alluded to, my partner is Spanish and um, she's from Castilla Leon. Now, when people think of Spain, they think of, you know, maybe the south of Spain, Granada or Ibiza, hmm. the islands, Barcelona, Madrid. Yeah. Mainly the Mediterranean, I think, that beachy kind of lifestyle. Yeah. You're in the heart of Spain where it's you don't get many tourists. There's not a lot of English spoken. It gets quite cold in the winter there. Mm. It's not the the Spain that we have in our minds or most people have in their minds. What drew you to that area? If for me, it was the real Spain because I lived in Spain in the 1970s. If I go back to where I lived then, it is so developed. I could be, you know in an English resort, really, of some sort, when you go to places like Benidorm, um, you know, you go from the Irish pub to the German beer hall, and um, it doesn't feel like the real Spain that that I'm nostalgic for. So in the centre of Spain, that Castilla y Leon, um, for one, the most beautiful Spanish is spoken there. Yep. Um, there are no tourists, so it's real. There, There's you know, Spanish tourism to the area a, mm. a little bit. Um, the food's great. The people are really excited to meet people from the other side of the world in, in particular. Um, and I don't know, it just felt like the real Spain that I remembered from the 1970s. Yeah, so that was where I, I wanted to relive that, that, um, that time in Spain in that particular region because it is so beautiful. Absolutely. I've spent a lot of time in that area. Yeah. Um, it's one thing, I guess, to go over there when you've still got your house in Australia. I feel like that would feel like security in a sense that you go, oh, we can always go back. But you did take the step to sell your house in Australia. Is that correct? Eventually we did, yeah. So after we <clears> bought <throat> the house in Spain, and, and house is probably a, a slight overstatement. It was a ruin. I've seen the picture. <laughs> it was a ruin. It had a hole in the roof. One of the ceilings had collapsed. The chimney had collapsed all the way down into the, the lower floor. No one had lived in it for 11 years. But I think we were so emboldened by having taken this step to buy a house in Spain that when we came back, we went, well, what we were looking for, a small small village, small town, community, um, because COVID hit, we, we had to stay here um, for some time. You know, last time we came back, all the borders had closed. So we said, well, let's do the same thing. So within weeks, our house in Sydney was on the market and we bought a, um, a lovely 1920s wooden cottage uh, on the mid-north coast in a small village on a big river. Uh, and I'm from a town with a big river in the Netherlands. That all felt very nice. And there are black and white cows. And that too felt um, very welcoming, I thought. I can hear the cows move when I'm in bed sometimes. So that's pretty, pretty good. Um, so I think we were just emboldened. I think our friends and family were a little worried about us. We were making a lot of decisions in a quick time. Um, but I think we are lucky bastards. Um, <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we have an income. We have a house over our head here. We have a house over our head there. We 
have the luxury of reinventing ourselves. It's, it's you know, we're not. So is totally the plan going to be spend a, like the summer in Spain or summer and spring and then come back to Australia for the Aussie summer, roughly? We, we want to experience all the different seasons. So one of the things I miss um, about Europe is that the, the seasons, you know, the, the, the joy of spring, the, the beauty and the blistery winds of autumn and the colour of the leaves. And so I'm very keen to spend uh, a couple of months in all the different seasons and, and just vary that year by year, whatever else is on, really. I've got to say, I'm in that Castiglione, and I presume it's part of the when, when you say it's an old house, it, probably for anyone listening in Australia, they wouldn't grasp, I don't want to be rude about your house, but how run down some of those houses are. Like, they're, they're amazingly run. Like, when you look at how much work you guys need to do, or at least pay someone to do, yeah. do you sometimes go, oh, we could have made it a bit easier by buying something a little bit more new? Yeah, but but we're all so charmed by the romance of an old house. I mean, the, <laughs> the house was, um, well, there's a plaque above the door that says 1766. Wow. And then Captain Cook hadn't made it to Australia yet. And then behind there is a barn, which the locals have told me, and we sort of looked a bit at the construction, was probably built 200 years before that. So we got this humongous barn behind us. Um, well, it's attached to the house. There's a, there's a door. The, the, the cows and the pigs used to run through the kitchen to get into the barn. Um, so, you know, there's still an opportunity for a Kevin McLeod barn conversion one day. Um, but, yeah, there, there was no kitchen uh, at all. There was an open fire and the pots and pans hang on that. Um, there were parts of the house were still um, river stones, pebbles that, that had been put into the mud. Um, the bathroom had been put in in the 1960s somewhere when sewage came to town. And because it's a really old house, um, there weren't many opportunities of where to put it because the house, it's next to a river, yep. but it's below the road. And as we all know, that stuff doesn't travel uphill. Um, so um, in order to get level with the road, they built this tiny little bathroom with a sitting bath that you're sitting um, about a metre above the floor level in the house. So they must have been really short um, because I certainly couldn't. <laughs> well, most funny shower, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, oh, well, you, you couldn't stand up in the shower. And uh, to brush my teeth, I'd sort of have to come in on bended knees and, you know, bend, <laughs> bend my, my head down. Um, so well, that, that one, it was sort of functional. And when we first moved in, it was great because we had a toilet um, and we had somewhere, you know, it was middle of summer when we first uh, arrived there. Hot. It was hot, hot. Um, so, you know, being able to use the, the shower in that sitting bath, they're, they're really funny things. They're, they're about the size of, I don't know, a small coffee table and it's got these levels in it where you sit uh, in and... Um, and then a, a shower you can sort of use around. But, yeah, it was very primitive, very you, primitive. You say in the book, um, I should give it a look, there it is, um, that you bought the house, you committed to the idea, you just got the builder in and then COVID hit. Like when you were sitting here in Australia, did you just go, oh, my God, like how is this possible? Yeah, I think everyone 
sort of, you know, have has COVID stories. Um, we, we weren't nearly as bad off as most people. We, we um, were relatively safe where we were and that house had been there at least since 1766. So we knew that it was, it wasn't going to get much worse. And the first, <laughs> one of the first things uh, Paco, the builder did was he fixed the roof and, and he promised to do that um, when we left. I mean, that was another interesting story too. I mean, we're, we're not young and naive, but, but obviously old and, and, um, and naive because we just walked around with him and he hand wrote on a piece of paper what it was that we were asking. And then he put a figure next to it, what he thought it was going to cost. And we had a handshake. We had no contract. Um, and it turned out absolutely fabulous. I mean, once again, that's a difference between being in those tourist areas where there are many dodgy builders ready to rip off yeah. the, the foreigners. These people were so honourable. They've lived in those villages for generations. They're not going to ruin their reputation for 10,000 mm. euros. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I'm just thinking of your husband. I know that you are a translator and you're fluent in Spanish. It's, it's, it's tougher when, you, when you're not fluent. How did he go battling with the language? Um, he, he, he's learning. We, we, he did a short stint in um, Valencia. We were staying there for a while a few years back, and he did one of those intensive courses all day long and study at night for two weeks, and that really improved his Spanish quite rapidly. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I am fluent, but I don't know building terms. Um, you know, I, I'd struggle with, um, you know, building terms in, in yeah. English. So that was a bit of a learning curve for me too. But you can always talk around it, and that's what he does too. He's, he's much more um, brave, less timid, uh, I suppose, after a cerveza, a beer in the bar. It yep. seems to always loosen the tongue and your inhibitions are just not <laughs> as great. It's quite fun how you... Um... In the book, you talk about going to the bar all the time because that's the way it works there. Everything yeah, yeah. it's about, you go to the bar and meet people. That's what they do. Uh, I was going to say, this is a financial podcast. So how do you find the cost of living in Spain? Is it uh, less than Australia? It's very cheap. Yeah, it's very cheap. We came back and they charged us $10 for two coffees. <laughs> we go, what? In Spain, it's um, dos cuarenta, two euros and 40 cents, and you probably get a little cake with it or something. Mm. Um, so, yeah, no, things things are certainly a lot cheaper. We bought the house for 25,000 euros. So at the time, I think it might have been around $40,000, and it's, it's, it's in a picturesque village with cobblestones, and it's a plot of 400 square metres, and it's got a walled garden and a three-story house and a humongous barn um, and a hole in the roof, obviously, <laughs> that, that impacted on the price. And a slightly uneven floor. <laughs> yeah, and a slightly uneven floor. And um, we, we've probably spent about 50,000 euros now, but the bottom floor, we got underfloor heating and, and um, there's a new bathroom and a new kitchen, all very authentic Um you know, I, I think we've done the age of the house justice. We've got mod cons, but it still looks like an old farmhouse. Um, so, and we'll probably spend a bit more time there. But 
there's also a financial payoff because I wanted to spend more time in Spain. And if you want to spend a couple of months a year there and you pay 150 euros a night for hotel accommodation and you have to have every mm. meal out, you do get your money back quickly. And we're happy for friends and family to go and stay there. We don't want to rent it out. We don't want to be in competition with the two little Casa Rurales. They're, they're two uh, people who rent out a whole house yeah, or, yeah. or a couple of rooms in the village. And, and certainly we don't want to send over Australians um, that could be guests in their places and, and contributing to the yeah. local economy. So um, You talk about the coffee. I mean, the part of the world you're in is like a fantastic wine-growing region. Mm. And I don't uh, – people out here know um, Rioja, but I don't think they know the Ribera del Duero sort of stuff to the equivalent level. But as you say, the wine is absolutely delicious. It is. And you go to a bar and it's like yeah. two euros a glass and you're like – yeah. This is crazy. I lived in Spain for six months. I came back so overweight because of the bread is so delicious. The wine's delicious. Yeah. And you just meet people for drinks all the time. And you, it is <laughs> not the offsetting sport culture. It's quite, it's quite the same degree. Um, but yeah, I had a wonderful time. Uh, yeah, no, the, so. the, the wines and the tapas, and it's the whole culture around that. You know, we were talking about a bar before. A bar is not what a bar is in Australia. The bar in Spain is the hub of town. It's the the social um, meeting place for everyone. You go there for coffee, you go for breakfast, you go for lunch, you go mid-morning to catch up with some friends, you have a wine in the evening, you might have dinner there. I mean, everything revolves around the bar. One of the things I love, there's a small um, nursing home in our village, and on Sundays everyone comes from you know, they're prob- most of the children of the people in there would be working in Soria, the province. And everybody wheels out their oldies to one of the two bars um, for a drink before lunchtime or have to have lunch there or something. So, And there's this old guy who lives in the um, nursing home and he's in a wheelchair. I'm not sure why he's got it because with his with his hands on the resting handles, not on the wheels. He sort of steps himself using his legs while sitting in the wheelchair to the bar every morning. So um, <laughs> it, it, it's for young and old. I, I love seeing, you know, three or four women in their late 70s or 80s coming together in the late afternoon for a glass of wine. I mean, you don't see many octogenarians going to the bar in Australia, do you? No, I think they look after their old a bit better over there. They because of those communities, they they mm. um, they sort of stick together uh, like that in that way. When you when you go, so you come back to Australia, then you go back. Do you do you slip back into their timetable because it is different over there? They you know they'll have dinner at ten o'clock at night. Um, yeah. Do you still do you like? stay on the Australian timetable or do you slowly sort of your body no. gets back into the rhythm? Yeah, we, we certainly try to be on the Spanish timetable time as soon as possible. Um, dinner at 10, still find it hard. Um, <laughs> the last time we were there, some of the neighbours were there for um, the Easter weekend and um, they said, oh, let's, let's all go meet you at the bar before dinner tonight. And we said, yeah, yeah, good. What time? Ah, oh, 8.30? 
And then at 10 o'clock, they said, would you like to come to our place? We're probably going to put some potatoes on the barbie or something. <laughs> I mean, that would have taken, you know, from 10 to 11, 11.30 before those potatoes were, were uh, edible in any way. So we'd actually snuck in a little bit to eat before we met them <laughs> the bar at 8.30. But, um, well, we certainly don't tell people. We pretend we're fine with it. But we're, we're, we're morning people like the birds will wake yeah. me up at first light and, and I'll be up. So it's pretty hard to also do the night owl thing. I remember last time I went to Spain, we were in Ibiza to visit uh, Isabel's sister and we had some people and the, and the booking was made at midnight. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was dinner at yeah, the restaurant. Yeah, that was dinner. <laughs> yeah. And uh, look, I don't know how they do it because nobody really sleeps in the siesta. I mean, that's all a myth. I mean, yeah. people, people have a big meal. If you're working and caught away from home, you, you go to a bar and you have a three-course meal with a bottle of wine and, uh, <laughs> and then you go back to work at 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock or whatever your, your business does. Yeah, so nobody really sleeps this siesta. I think they all get up much later than we do. And um, perhaps we need to close the, the, the big wooden blinds. I mean, that's probably why they're there. Um, yeah, those are, uh, is it persianas? I think they're called. Yeah, persianas. Yeah, persianas. So that. Um, it's so black you know, when the they do that. The light doesn't come in because yeah. we're so used to waking up at first light. I mean, when you've got a working life, um, I worked in the zoo for 30 odd years and, you know, you're, you're up um, very early to start the day. So we've always been, you know, getting up between six and seven somewhere. Um, so it's very hard to stop that, but we certainly try. We, we don't have lunch at noon. Uh, we, we don't have dinner at six. But um, we, we might try to have um, a lunch at 2, 2.30, somewhere between 2 and 3 o'clock. And if we can get a, if it's just the two of us, we'll probably have dinner at about 8. But um, if we go out, then, you know, that's how it is. That's the timetable over there. <laughs> so you, you're in Australia now. When are you going back to Spain? Uh, probably September because... Um, these books just come out, so I'm doing some of the promotions. I've just been to the Bellingham Readers and Writers Festival, which was fabulous, hence my my voice is a, a li little crackly. I did way too much talking. Um, so, yeah, I'll do some of that stuff, and then we're going back um, late August, early September probably. When I finished the book, it, it occurred to me, like, you just – uh, bought the house, etc. There's like another book coming as you do up the house, it seems to me, and whatever adventures you find yeah. while you're over there. Are you going to do another one? Look, I'm, I'm keen to. I'd like to do a follow-up and perhaps I might combine memoir writing with novel writing. I don't know whether anyone does that. But the last person to live in the house is um, Soledad, an older woman who had a very interesting life. And I might like to do a fictional account of that life of a, a single mother in Catholic Spain in the early 50s and um, that would have been what rough. that all meant. Yeah, so I'm very keen on doing that. We found so many amazing things in the house. Like we bought everything, three stories and a barn full of hoardings of uh, – generations of the Martinez family. Uh, so 
there are seven trunks in the attic and 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 a gun. I remember that in the book. Yeah, there's a pistol. There was a pistol which um, we were told was probably from the um, the Civil War in Spain, 1936 to 1939, um, and clothes. There were loads of clothes, and and no one had done this poor woman um, the the service, the res- paid her the respect to deal with her possessions. That would have been precious to her. Mm. There was still um, a chorizo in the fridge. There was bread. Ooh, that in, would have been a bit rough, yeah. Yeah, there was still, her shoes were under the bed. The clothes that would have come just off the line were folded on the bed. That her seems Bible extraordinary was, that, that yeah. they're just that abandoned, like that. Yeah. I, I think maybe people came in and took perhaps precious things, but she was dirt poor, like, Awfully, awfully bitter, cold, poor life. Oh, it gets very had. cold in that part. Yeah, yeah, that part gets that part gets very cold. So, um, yeah, no one did that. And and Alex and I, uh, we saw it as our duty and privilege to be able to pay her the res- the respect to her life that it deserved. But when you when because we bought the house with everything in it. When you eat at someone's table, sitting on their chair, sleeping between the sheets that she's embroidered, um, you do start to feel a connection. And we were very keen to make sure that everything we did with her possessions was the, the best decision we could make. So, you know, all the good clothes went to charities and mm. um, we reused. I mean, we hardly bought any furniture. I mean, there was beautiful, you know, iron bedheads and um, oak oak yep. furniture and, you know, it's just delightful to be able to clean it up. I mean, there's a bit of woodworm we need to attack in some of it. and um, But we, we needed to buy very little. But it's just been um, sad to to be in, yeah, I, I feel impacted by her life. Um, yeah, I can just imagine you there sitting by the river there, tapping away with the yeah with the Castilian yeah. sun when it's nice and warm again yeah. and all that sort of stuff. That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it is pretty good. Um, so far, none of the locals really know that I've written a book. I changed the name of the village just in case they were a little bit upset with my portrayal of the people <laughs> I chat to in the bar. Yeah. Um, but I think I'm safe because nobody speaks English. There's one woman who has a um, couple of words of English. She's uh, our neighbour, Carmen, who um, brought me a chorizo to welcome us to the village, which was just gorgeous. I had a funny moment once when Spain won the World Cup, I thought it was quite a, we were over there at the time, I think it was 2010, and, I was like, I can, I can write an article about this. And I, I bashed it out. I sent it to the Age newspaper and they published it. And, and you know, I went to bed and didn't think about it. You know, I got up in the morning and I, and I was like, oh, you know, that's cool. They're going to publish it. And I was trying to explain to my Spanish mother-in-law that this was exciting. But yeah. I, at that stage, I couldn't articulate it. She's just looking at me like, I don't know why he's excited, but um, do you want a coffee? <laughs> <laughs> Let me feed you in some yeah, way. Yeah, yes. Let me feed you something. I don't know what else to do with it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um, that's great. All right, Erna, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. and love the book. 
I love travel books and I love Spain too. So I love getting over there and, and hearing it. And yeah, incredible that you're in that part of Spain because yeah, most people don't go there and they don't hear about no. it. So super cool. I'll be thrilled to see you do a sequel for the for the story of the house. 